0: Hey, it's Mike Frazier, rock on.
1: Hey metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to the final Focus on Metal for 2020. Yep, that's right. This is going to be the uh, the last episode for the year before Richie and I go out on to winter break. But the good news is that all of the planning the last couple weeks all came together, and we actually got to have the episode that we really wanted to make for this week. I know it doesn't happen all the time, and a lot of things really went off of the rails this year for the concerts and everything else, but I'm very happy to say that our planning for our final 2020 episode all came together as we welcome back uh, guests we've had on many, many times, engineer, producer, mix master general, Mike Frazier. And the main reason that we have Mike on the show this week is to talk with him all about the brand new, long awaited, often rumored ACDC release, power-up. So as you may know, Mike's been uh, with ACDC for a whole bunch of albums. We talked to him a while back about a lot of his work with ACDC. And so obviously with the rumors and everything swirling since 2018 about whether or not this one was going to come out, we were most eager to talk to Mike about the uh, the brand new album that he engineered and also uh, co mixed with uh, Brendan O'Brien. So he's been in a bit of a uh, media blackout in uh, being able to talk about the album for a while. But it's it's December, and uh, you know he was talking with Richie. So uh, you know he told Richie, "Hey, you know, once all that's all set and I'm able to talk, I'll be more than happy to uh, hop on the show with you guys and talk all about." The, uh, the brand new release, making that, and what's going on, and all of that good stuff. And of course, while we have Mike on the show, we can't leave well enough alone. Richie also took the opportunity to talk with him about a few other albums Back in his uh, story career as well. So besides ACDC, we got some other goodies from some other name acts on the show as well. A little bit of backstory and uh, some tales to tell. And within that, there's also a lot of uh, referencing back to Little Mountain Sound. And for those of you who have been with us for a while, know that we did a big project on Little Mountain Sound a few years ago. For those of you that aren't, yeah, we did a big project on Little Mountain Sound multi-episode thing a few years ago all of those episodes are available up at FocusOnMetal.net. When you get to that main page, scroll down and you will see a whole bunch of episodes all clustered together, all about Little Mountain Sound, talking with uh, almost everybody that uh, Mike talks about in his discussion this week. But anyways, with all of that said, why don't we actually go and take a listen to this week's discussion with Richie and engineer Mike Frazier.
2: Hello hey mike it's richie hey richie how are you mate i'm not too bad so you're in vancouver are you
0: i am yes yes sir
2: so this year for you now as regards your job mixing and engineering um has that really affected you to covid
0: oh yeah for sure business has gone way down you know with the the band's not able to tour and generate money you know no one's got money to do a record or, you know, they're not going to spend the money to do the record when it's up in the air, when they can release it and tour, you know. It's uh, quite a problem.
2: Mm. Have you even been able to go into the warehouse to do some work, or have you been stuck at home?
0: I've been doing stuff here and there. Uh, I think I've worked maybe two weeks uh, since March. Wow. Those little one day things here and there, yeah. Wow. But, you know, we go in, and, and it's, it's pretty simple for me because it's only... When I'm mixing, it's only me and my assistant in there so we can keep distance. And when we're in the same control room together, we both wear our masks and stuff. So that's the only thing that's a bit different, you know. But, uh, you yeah, know, we can do it pretty safely.
2: Yeah, so um, you haven't been going crazy then, have you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, wasn't <laughs> it wasn't too bad when, when the
0: weather's nice, you know. I, I don't think my yard ever looked as good, you know. Probably <laughs> cut the grass every day and trim the trees, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, Mike, I've been in work the whole time because I work on a farm and we're, con- oh. we're considered a necessity. And yeah. um, so everybody else has been off. My kids have been in and out of school. My wife has worked from home since March. And every day I've been in work.
0: Oh. <laughs> hey, I'm coming out there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a fun year. All right. It's been interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is there any sign of any live shows coming back to your area at all?
0: No, I think everybody's kind of pinning their hopes on uh, these vaccines that are supposed to start rolling out. I think in Canada here, we get our first batch in early January or something, but, uh, you know, I don't know. They're... The vaccines have only just been developed, and they've never really had a chance to 100% test them. So I don't know how effective they're going to be. You know, yeah. Yeah, fingers I'd... crossed they they do something. But uh, yeah, no, no, nothing live here. You know, there's been a few. Uh, I think a few of the bars or pubs or something have had a, a couple little things, but um, you know they've got to have everybody all socially distanced and that. So it's a very small crowd. And, you know, I imagine any band or, or group that's playing aren't really making any money. You know, they're just doing it for the exposure.
2: Yeah, there's there's a show here in a couple of days' time. Jeff Tate from, uh, he used to be in Queensryche, is doing it. And what yeah. w- what they're doing is they're doing two socially distant shows. So he's got a two-and-a-half-hour show. One starts at five, and the other one starts at eight. And he's doing them two days in a row. Right, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So well, at least it's something, you know.
2: Yeah, you, you didn't you didn't get the drive through shows up your way, did you? No, no,
0: I don't know if there's anywhere that's sort of big enough to put something like that on.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Mike, yeah. I, ha- I have you on about to talk primarily about the ACDC record, Power Up. <laughs> so, I interviewed you. I think it was in December, uh, twenty eighteen, and mm-hmm. we ta- we talked about ACDC and the picture had been out there at the time on the internet and I did not want to ask you about it because I didn't want to put you in a tough spot. And of course, by that time, the record had been done. Um, did you have a lot of people asking you where the band back in the studio?
0: Uh, I did, especially, you know, once the, those pictures had kind of come out and, you know, it was fairly obvious, but, uh, you know, I couldn't say anything uh, until we knew what was happening anyways, you know, and, uh, you know, I, it was about two years before this record came out. And, you know, at one point there, I was kind of thinking, I wonder if it's even going to come out because, you know, there's in my mind still some question, you know, who was going to be in the band for, for the live touring, you know, it's one thing coming in and doing the record, but you know, who's going to tour. So, um, you know, when Angus announced, to. Uh, uh, when when did that come out? October was it? Hmm. Uh, but the record was coming out. I was like, oh yeah, excellent, great. And you know, part of that delay too was uh, was the COVID thing as well. You know, I think just as they were wrapping it up to to release it, the the COVID kind of hit. So they thought, oh, let's just put on the brakes and just see what's going to happen here. So
2: yeah, now when you did Rock or Bust, and then of course Brian couldn't do all the touring, and Axel Rose came in, and then Malcolm passed away. Did you think you were done doing ACDC records?
0: You know what? I, I kind of did, um, but I knew you know Angus still has a, uh, a lot of fire in his belly still. So, uh, you know, you can't ever say 100%, but I thought, well, it's not looking good anymore. You know, sort of the band is, is you know, I think at that time, too, um, Cliff was you know, talking about his retirement and that was going to be the last tour he was doing. And and of course, uh, you know, Phil had his problems. So you start to wonder, uh, is this kind of the end of it, you know, but, uh, well, like I say, Angus has still got a lot, lot of more music in him. So he's, he's going to get out there as as long as he can, you
2: know, mm. Mike, do you remember who called you to tell you that Malcolm had passed away?
0: You know what? I don't remember actually. Um, it might have been Brian. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, you weren't able to go to the funeral, were you?
0: No, I was going to try to, uh, at that point I was, I was fairly busy though. Um, but I thought, well, I'll, you know, take a week off by the time you fly down there and et cetera. Uh, but <laughs> looked to getting a plane ticket and it was something like $9,000. So, uh, <laughs> wasn't really something I could afford.
2: Mm. So, so Mike, who called you to tell you that you were doing a new ACDC record? Was it Brendan O'Brien, or, or can you remember?
0: Uh, it would have been management, but it called me and, and uh, you know, one to book studio time uh, and have me put some time on, on hold at the studio and then uh, just to say that uh, uh, we were going to meet up at the studio and take it from there. So I didn't know still what was going on who was in the band uh what exactly we were we doing you know whether it was just Brandon and angus coming in and going through song ideas or or you know who was going to be in the band right so first day i walked into the studio um and there's all the boy everybody who was there it was like a christmas morning you know <laughs> brian and cliff and Phil and stevie and angus and it's just like all these smiling faces and I think we must have had a hug fest for the, the first half hour. <laughs> it was, it yeah. was
2: pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you get to see ACDC with Axl Rose singing?
0: No, I didn't. Uh, I don't think they played through Vancouver here oh,
2: with that
0: well. configuration. so
2: Okay. It, it must have gone through your head, though, when they booked studio time, that Axel Rose might actually be in the band.
0: Uh, yeah, that was a thought, for sure.
2: Okay. So so which guy returned and surprised you the most, Mike? Was it Phil or was it Brian?
0: Uh, probably both equally, you know, um, maybe more filled because I wasn't sure, you know, with his, uh, criminal record, whether he could even, you know, get to the border. Yeah. That was sort of my main thought. Um, Brian, I knew, you know, his, his hearing is, is mostly detrimental when he's doing live stuff and, you know, you can control the volume in his headphones and whatnot in the studio. So that wasn't such a big surprise. Um, because I knew if, you know, if he got a call from Angus asking if he wanted to do some more music, Brian would have jumped right in there as fast as he could, you know. So uh, probably Phil was the biggest surprise.
2: Mm. Now, when you were doing Rock or Bust and you were talking to Angus, did he ever tell you that he had like tons of song ideas still left over that him and Malcolm had worked on?
0: Uh yeah, well it was known that he, Agus has got a big trunk of oh, song ideas, uh, riffs and all that. So you know he he still's got a mountain of it. You know, uh, some of them are in various states of of um, preparedness though. So you know it would take a while to put it together. Uh, hmm. But yeah, I knew there was more songs. Okay. In the treasure trove. <laughs>
2: yeah. No. Were you involved in the pre-production on any of these ACDC albums at all, or did the band just come in with the full tracks and just play them?
0: Uh, the band just come in, uh, and on the records we've done with, with Brendan, um, they've kind of, well, no, maybe the last few rocker busts in this one, uh, they've just kind of come in as ideas. Uh, there might've been a couple of songs that were kind of, kind of fully there, but generally it was just, uh, just ideas. And, um, you know, Brendan and, and Angus would go through and and uh, develop them into a full song state.
2: Mm. Do the other guys have any input at all? Or are they waiting around for Angus and Brendan to show them what to play?
0: Uh, I think they just, you know, when the song is ready, they they bring it in and everybody sit down, plug in, and say, okay, this is, it kind of does this, goes here, okay, and away they went, you know, I mean, they're, they're Play together for so long, it, it you know they don't need to rehearse the song or whatever. You know, uh, sometimes they break down little notes, you know where the changes were and stuff. But uh, you know, they they uh, got up to speed pretty quick on the songs.
2: Yeah. Now, Mike, when I spoke to you the last time, we talked about how they record, and it's 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 Phil, Cliff, Angus, and Stevie record as a band. Now, I, I've spoken to a lot of other musicians, and what they said they'll do is they'll record as a band just to get the basic drum track, and then they'll overdub a lot of stuff on top of that. But with ACDC, it seems that when you record the four of them, that's the track. Is that a fair thing to say?
0: Yeah, pretty much, you know, because they're trying to capture the uh, the magic of the song, and, um, you know, as I say, they, they played so great together. Uh, we can generally do it pretty live,
2: you know. Mm. Have you ever worked with a band like uh, like a c d c that's done that that have taken the guitar's bass and drums and and kept them all
0: uh, not many there's been a maybe a couple, but you know most of the time we do as you described you know everybody gets out there and, and plays it as a unit and we basically just keep the drums uh sometimes it's because you know having the guitar uh cabinets hidden away in little closets and stuff you can't quite get the 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 bigger the biggest sound you want so you know you're overdubbing them just to get a better sound on it uh also when they're playing live you know nobody's really watching their tuning that closely so you know you want to kind of fix things up a bit so you tend to just keep the drum track and maybe the bass and drums and then uh, just overdub from there
2: mm. Do, do you think Stevie was more confident doing this record than he was rock or Bust?
0: Uh, I'd say about the same. You know, maybe rock or Bust, you know, was probably, you know, thinking more. You know, the big shoes he had to fill and all that. And he was probably a lot more relaxed on this one. But you know, Stevie's great. He just comes in and, and does what he needs
2: to do. You know. Yeah, yeah. Now, when the guys are, are recording, is Brian Johnson there, or does he wait to come in and when everything is done?
0: Uh, Brian. There, most of the time, um, you know, he, when we we're on this last record, so none of the lyrics were written until uh, the music was done. So he didn't really have anything to do. And um, we've, in the past, we've kind of stopped having him sing along with the band because it kind of wears him out. So when it's time to actually sing the song for real, he's going to take a day or two off. So, because you know when you're recording you know you're working you know say 12 hour a day well if brian's got to sing for 12 hours it's that's way more than singing at a concert for three hours a day you know what i mean so so we to get let him have his break so he'll pop in and out as we're recording and that but uh you know if he's not needed he's off somewhere having lunch or doing some shopping or <laughs> whatever he wants to do you know
2: yeah now when you're recording his vocals on this one did you have to talk to him about how you were going to record him because of his hearing issues at all? Or was that a conversation you had with him? Like did you did you sit down with him and say, Listen, Brian, do I have to do anything special now because of your hearing?
0: Uh well with the vocals it was mostly Brendan doing them. Brendan had his own little room, uh, up upstairs from the control room with another little desk and microphones and all that. So he uh, he would be doing Brian's vocals. I was doing, you know, guitar fix ups or or whatever, um, but I know when we sing with Brian now, we don't even put headphones on him. We just have the music coming out the speakers and angle it in such a way that you sort of minimize the bleed onto the microphone, and that way he doesn't have to have anything you know directly on his ears, and he can you know hear things a little bit better.
2: Yeah, Mike, how tough is Brian on his vo- on his vocal performance?
0: Oh well. I mean, he's not tight. He just comes in and he gives it his all every time, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, he's usually pretty quick. Uh, you know, he's just goes in there and just gives her, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. So does he rely on Brendan a lot then? You know, is that is that good enough? And then Brendan says yes. Is that the way it goes? Like, he's not the sort of singer that says, no, I want to do it again.
0: Uh, there's probably a bit of both of that, but you know, I would say, you know, Brendan probably coaches him through the bulk of it and say, you know, here's what we're thinking and here's here's this, you know, because Brendan and Agus and had, you know, created all these songs so um, you know, they know what it, they they want out of Brian and, and Brian just gives it. Uh you know, Brian's not happy with something, you know, say, Oh my son can have another go at that or something like that, you know. So it's probably a bit of both.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what are we talking about getting Brian laying down these vocals, like two or three days?
0: Um, well, I know Brendan would sing him for about half an hour, maybe an hour a day, uh, just so that he wouldn't wear him out. Um, because, you know, Brian sounds great when he's fresh, as soon as he's sung for a couple of hours sometimes. The freshness sort of starts disappearing, so he had to come in, you know, maybe a half hour, an hour each day, and would grab as much of the the song as he could. And if they needed to fix or finish it, up the next day he'd have him come in the next day. And he just kind of kept going like that. It was a just a
2: nice little easy schedule for him, you know. Yeah, and I'm assuming Angus is there when he's doing the vocals.
0: Uh, yeah, or sometimes he'd be down with me, you know, doing a guitar solo or something like that. But uh, you know, Angus is there because Angus written all the lyrics. So you know, if there's any lyrical changes to be made, uh, if it didn't roll off the tongue or stuff like that, you know, Angus would be there and throw out his
2: suggestions. Hmm. Mike, tell me a little bit about Brendan O'Brien as a producer because you work with a lot of guys, like you work with Bruce and Bob Rock and you know, all these great, great producers, what makes Brendan O'Brien different to all of them?
0: Well, Brendan is great. You know, I think, uh, one of his biggest assets is he's a, is a really good guitar player in his own right. Um, you know, he, he also writes music so he can speak musically to the band guys or show them what he, he's looking for on the guitar or stuff. So he, um, he tends to like to work really quickly and doesn 't let things get bogged down because you know once you get bogged down, you kind of gotta uh get everybody you know jazzed up again to do their part because you're trying to capture you know this this great magic you know it can 't just sound lackluster it 's got to sound like it 's on fire, you know, so he likes to work pretty quick
2: mm. so he he'll pick up a guitar, go from your side of the glass, walk in, and say no i don 't want this i'm I'm looking for that he's no problem doing that.
0: No, or he, a lot of times he would sit out with the band uh, out in the tracking room
2: and, you know, the band would be playing and he
0: goes, um, hey, you know, how about if we did this change before we did that change or something and he'd throw that out there and they'd try it and sometimes, you know, they'd go oh yeah, that's way better, let's do that, or, you know, sometimes they well, let's just stay with what we got, you know, but, uh, you know, he... Brendan was just really great at letting the band be the band, but, you know, give them a little coaching prodding or whatever when they needed it.
2: Mm. What about your role for Brendan as an engineer? Does he more or less leave you alone? Like, is he studio savvy? Like, does he know the way around the board and all that like you would?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, he's uh, you know, he's a, a mix engineer in his own right as well. You know, he's recorded and mixed up a lot of his own productions, so uh, I know when we first met up, uh, what was that first record we did?
2: Uh, Stiff Lip or Black Ice, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we had a, a, a nice conversation about, you know, he says, I'm just going to let you do your thing. But you know, he says, you know, uh, I like getting my hands on the board too. So he says, you know, is that going to be a problem? I said, no, not at all. We're, we're here as a team doing it. So, you know, he rarely jumped in and touched the board, but sometimes he'd just, oh, here, let me have a little fiddle around and, and do a rough mix or something like that, you know, and then he'd have a fiddle around. But, uh, you know, generally he let me do my thing and, and he did his thing.
2: Yeah. Mike, now the last day you wrapped up recording, you, you talked about the first day you had all the group hugs and you were talking, you know, for about half an hour laughing and joking and stuff. Tell me about the last day, because surely that, all all the emotions couldn't have been lost on you that, Maybe there wasn't going to be a new ACDC record. Now you've gone ahead and done it and finished it. What was the mood like in the studio? Can you remember?
0: Well, um, you know, as, as things got completed, like, you know, when we were finally done tracking all the songs, uh, then Phil went home. So, you know, people just sort of slowly start disappearing. Um, we, I guess it was just Phil that went home because we needed Cliff to stay for singing backgrounds. And uh, Stevie had to stay because he jumped in there for some of the background as well. So, uh, yeah, I guess the rest of the band was there right till the end. And, you know, it was it was like the end of any record, though. You know, you've spent all this time with somebody and then it's like, OK, well, we'll see you when we see you next. And, you know, you never know when that's going to be. It could be another five years or, or not. But it wasn't a, a big final farewell or anything like that, you know.
2: Mm. Mike, how long does it, does it take you to normally mix ACDC albums?
0: Uh, I would say probably two to three weeks.
2: Is that, around there. Is that quicker than most other bands uh, you work with?
0: No, it's about the same, I think. Yeah. Okay. You, know, you just get in there and kind
2: of mix a song a day. Maybe it takes you two days. Okay. Song kind of thing. And. Th- does Angus come up for the mixes at all? Or does he leave you and Brandon oh, yeah. to do them? Oh, he's oh, there? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, he's there. Yeah. Okay, okay. Can, can you think of any one album you did with him where he was more vocal about the mixes than the other one?
0: Uh, well, probably this one, because there's a lot on his head. You know, I think this was the first record that he didn't have either of his brothers to bounce off of. You know, yeah. I know... For the last few years, he couldn't bounce anything off Mal, but uh, I don't know if he's... Him and George stayed in touch, but, you know, he really felt alone on this one, like the whole weight of the, the band and everything was on him on this one. And, uh, you know, he really, you know, stepped up and and did a brilliant job.
2: Mm. Mike, is there any story about Mal that stands out, a funny story? Like, you've done a lot of records with the guy. Um, I know he was the leader of the band him and Angus, but it was more him than Angus who was the leader. He's the older brother. Um, is there any funny story you can tell me about in the studio with Malcolm?
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, uh, not, nothing really comes to mind. You know, Mal was just really, really great at uh, kind of leading. Like, it, you know, it was always him and Angus. But I know Angus looked up to Mal, so you know, whenever Mal say, "Hey, hey," he says. We we should uh, tweak your guitar sound a bit. He's you know sounding a bit you know glassy or something like that. And so Angus would play a bit, and then Mal says, "Yeah, yeah." He should "Let's dial that up a little bit better or, or something." You know, they always uh, Angus always looked up to him, but you know if something was bugging Ang and he wanted some change, you know he'd bring it up to Mal, and Mal says, "Oh, I think, I think that's okay." And, and Angus would sort of argue his case, and Mal says, "Okay, let's have a look at that then." And you know they're they're really. Uh, worked well as brothers together, you know?
2: Mm. Is Brian the Joker in the band?
0: Oh yeah, for sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so many,
0: many, many times I told Brian, you know, when he's uh, when he's done with his musical career, he's got a full career as a stand-up comic. <laughs> he, he's just always got some joke going.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mike, I got some other que- questions I want to ask you about, about some other records you did. Um... Mm-hmm. I can't leave you go without asking you about um Eddie Van Halen. We're not worthy. Of course you you mixed the balance record that Bruce Fairbairn produced. Um yeah. when you were mixing that record, did, did you see Eddie a lot during that pro- time?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh Eddie and Alex would come in, you know, every day when I have a mix ready, they'd come in and listen and and uh, check it out and yay or nay it.
2: Okay. <laughs> Okay, so so tell me about tell me about Eddie Van Halen, the guy. Everyone knows about the guitar uh, player, but tell me about him as a person.
0: Oh, uh, he was a, he was a great guy. Um, like for that record, I had um, I had been uh, in L.A. At, at Eddie's home studio, and we were doing up demos. That's how I first got involved with that, and recording demos and and hanging out and all that, and then. Um, and then I think that's when I had to go to New York to do an ACDC record, funny enough, and they would said, oh, well, we need to find a, a producer for this. So I suggested, and I put them together with Bruce Fairburn. So the the plan was, was once I was done the ACDC record, we'd jump into the studio and, and do the balance record. Um, but I guess when Bruce got involved, things pro- progressed quicker than planned, and so Bruce decided to go on and have the record recorded. So they went in and recorded it all, and then by that time, I was done the a c d c so then that's that's when I came in to mix it so i had I had lots of time hanging out with eddie who used to we used to go golfing quite a lot and uh you know it was it almost felt like he was a, a a brother to me
2: Wow what was the relationship like with you and alex how different are they as people Alex and eddie
0: um they're pretty much the same. I would say Alex is a little bit more, uh, withdrawn, you know, Eddie's a little more flamboyant and out there. And Alex is a little bit more withdrawn, but you know, he's a, he's a great guy as well. We would have, uh, quite a lot of laughs and, you know, he's got, uh, uh, you know, like he likes taping his, his snare drum completely up with, with duct tape. And that's how he gets his sort of little kind of clunky plop to it, you know? Um, so that was that was interesting. We'd have to, we'd work a bit on on getting the snare sound he wanted. You know, it was a bit uh, unorthodox that I had, how I had done it, but uh, you know, we ended up with something that we both loved. So that was always
2: a, a good thing. <laughs> yeah did did, did Sammy Hagar not come to this come to the mixes at all? Did you have any contact with him?
0: Uh, I did have. Call. He would come when we we're doing the rehearsals. Uh, you know, and show some vocals down. So you know. That was cool, but no, for the mixes it was just the brothers.
2: Okay. And did Eddie did Eddie want much changed when you when you mixed the record? You're saying Alex with his with his drums, he wanted them to sound a certain way. What about Eddie?
0: Uh well usually, you, you know, when they came in to listen to the mix they they generally like it. Like, you know, it was probably ninety percent there and and Eddie might say, hey, can I have a little more effect on my guitar or can I have less effect on my guitar? Or uh you know can you get the vocals up a little more and just little little uh finalizing tweets like that but uh you know generally everybody was pretty happy with how it's going
2: mm. eddie eddie at that stage must have been uh pretty savvy about working in a studio he had his own studio for years he must have really known his way around like oh, yeah. a board and everything he must have been really super smart about all that stuff
0: Yeah, yeah, he was, but you know, again, he, he just left me do my stuff and and he took care of his stuff, you know, he would never come in and jump on the
2: board and, and push
0: feeders around or anything, he just kind of left it to me.
2: Mm. So where did you say you mixed that, Mike, balance?
0: That one we, we mixed in LA at the record plant.
2: Oh, okay, so you never went to 5150, did you?
0: Just for just when we were doing all the the demo stuff and the rehearsals, we were at fifty one fifty. Okay.
2: But, uh, all the mixing was at, at record plant. Yeah. Tell me about fifty one fifty the studio. What's it like in there? Oh, it's cool. It's like a. It
0: was probably like a, a double, or maybe it was a four car garage originally, but you know they had you know closed it all in and soundproofed it, so it had a nice proper little control room and then a little sort of a lounge area and then a, a fairly good sized uh tracking room you know it looks like a, a proper studio okay and then they had a, a, a api board which i had never worked on before but since doing that I've, I've bought a whole bunch of api modules because they actually sound really good on guitars and drums they're sort of like they're similar to what a neve uh eq stuff would sound like you know so it's it's very kind of um
2: uh, rock conducive, you know. Mm, mm. Um, the other problem I want to talk to you about is um, I know that some of the White Snake nineteen eighty seven record was recorded in at Little Mountain. Um, was Keith Olson there doing that? can you remember?
0: No, he wasn't. No, it was uh, Mike Stone was producing
2: and engineering it. Okay, so did you know Keith at all? Because I know he passed away earlier this year.
0: No, I didn't know Keith. Um, I don't think I've ever even met him because, you know, it's tough meeting other producers and engineers is because, you know, you're usually in a studio work and, and unless you're working in the same complex, you never, you never run into the guys, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Did did you do any work on the 87 record yourself or were you just working with another band in a different studio?
0: No, I was there for the whole thing. I was assistant engineer at that point. So I was
2: assisting Mike Stone. Okay. So,
0: so yeah.
2: So who 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 was who was there? Did Sykes do all the guitars there? Was Coverdale there at all? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, they both were there. Uh, we did all the drums there with Ainsley. Um, um and yeah, no, everybody was there. Uh, I think we had most of it recorded, and uh, went to do some vocals. And then David had caught a cold or something, and 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 couldn't sing. So he decided to go down to Miami and sing. So he took off, and we were still there doing, you know, guitar solos and all that kind of stuff. And then we started sending tapes down to David to sing. And uh, somewhere along the line, that's where it sort of all derailed between
2: David and John. So, I don't know what happened between so them, but, you know. you Did you get a sense of friction at all with David and John when they were in Little Mountain?
0: Uh, no, no, not at all. Everything was all great and hunky dory, and you know I'm just there doing my job, and you know I don't, uh, I don't get my nose in all whatever politics and whatever politics were going on might have been happening back at the hotel because you know everybody in the studio was just there to just keep the vibe up and going and and working
2: hard. Mm. Was Neil Murray there at all? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you had the four, you had the four, the guys who recorded the record. All four of them were there.
0: Yeah, everybody was there. Yeah, it was was fun times.
2: Okay, tell me about Mike Stone, Um, just for a few minutes, Mike, because I've had a couple of guys on who've worked with him, and they haven't had the best experience with him. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me about your experience working with Mike and Mike doing that record. Uh, Mike was a
0: sweetheart. I mean, he. He was such a kind, soft-hearted person. Um, and for me, he was very going. You know, he uh, he would do all the EQing and, and mic placements and all the stuff, but he had me, you know, run the tape machine. You know, he was uh, English, so it was kind of more of an English thing. As, you know, your assistant was the tape off as well. Uh, so back there, it was, you know, the, the analog machines. And, you know, as the band's out there playing, if there were mistakes happen he have me stop the tape, rewind it and play the tape. And right where the mistake happened, he <laughs> would punch in everybody, uh, on the thing. And, and it's, it's pretty difficult to do because unless you time your punch correctly, it always left a little blip on the tape, you know? Uh, but if you're good at it, he could get it in without blipping. And I guess I got pretty good at it because, uh, <laughs> he just couldn't get over that, you know, we could keep doing that, uh, so that was fun, you know. I felt like I was part engineer then instead of just sitting there waiting for a, uh, you know, to go shop a mic or patching a, a cable for him. So it was it was a fun record.
2: Mm. Can you remember what what equipment John Sykes used? Because the guitar sound on that record is monstrous.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I think he had his uh, what are the bloody thing the Mark Threes. You know, I can't remember the name of the amps <laughs> okay but uh, I know we were having a bit of trouble on that and uh, Bob rock was next door working on a record and I guess Bob and John had been talking in the hallways kind of thing so John had Bob come in and dial up because Bob's a guitar player you know Mike Mike Stone's a great producer but he's you know not a guitar player so Bob came in and and uh, and dial up the guitar sound so uh out of that meeting and, and getting those Sounds for John, that's where the Blue Murder connection happened. Okay. John came in, he wanted Bob to produce it.
2: Okay, okay. That, that Blue Murder album's excellent, but I don't want I'm not gonna talk about that. <laughs> the other album the yeah. other oh, album? Hmm?
0: Mess, mess of Boogies is
2: the answer we were using. Ah, ah. And yeah. when John was tracking guitars on the Whitesnake album, um mm-hmm. did he like double track them or I'm not a studio guy, but, like, how many times did he have to, like, overdub the tracks to get that sound?
0: Uh, you know what? I It's hard remembering that far back. Yeah. You know, so much other stuff with John, but from my memory of it, I think that's what what we tended to do back then was, yeah, you know, you do a rhythm track and then you double it right away, you know, so that it's exact sound. It's like a big, fat, wide sound, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mike the the, other, the last record I want to talk to you about and I actually just picked this up on vinyl about 2 weeks ago, but I've loved it for mm-hmm. years and I, I I was reading the liner notes is um you did some work on Brian Adams reckless album. Mm-hmm. Um now when I did the little mountain sound project with yourself and Bob and Ron from and all these guys, they told me I think Ron told me that Bob Clearmountain was the guy that initially set up the loading bay to get that drum sound, and you were the assistant engineer on that. Can you remember is that was that true?
0: yeah, yeah, for sure you know his uh, Bob you know uh worked a lot out of out of uh, a place called the power station in New York, and the main tracking room is kind of like a hexagon shape with kind of a domed roof. So it's very, very live. So that's how he'd like to get drums is very live. Whereas Little Mountain was, you know, kind of built in the I don't know, late sixties or seventies, so the, the rooms tended to be pretty dead, lots of padding on the walls and it's still good for uh, recording string instruments and all because it was built as a jingle studio. But in one of our main tracking rooms, there was a doorway out to the loading bay. So, you know, as we're setting things up, Bob's looking around. He goes, oh, this is what's out here. Oh, loading bay. Oh, oh, this would be great. Um, you know, the problem is, is if you set drums up in that room, it's too uncontrollable. So what he had us do is, is open the side doorways and then with uh, baffles, you know, the baffles would be probably about six feet high, I guess we would make a like a tunnel out to these doorways. So the drum sound would fire out into the, the loading bay and you get this big loading bay sound. So that's what we did on those records. And then, uh, you know, uh, the rest of us kind of thought, oh, hey, that's a great idea. So, you know, started using that a lot on records. And I think that was one of the things that attracted a lot of the, these big bands that came to Vancouver was the drum sounds.
2: Yeah, and when Bob suggested setting up the drums in the loading bay, what did you all think? Like, did you think he was crazy?
0: Well, you know, I don't think he set them up in the loading bay. He said, "Let's just open this door," and we thought, "Hey, well, that's a great idea because I know in the past, you know, Ron obvious had, had uh set up drums in the load and recorded them in there for loading bay sound, but we never, I guess, we never tweaked to hey, have the drums in a in a nice controlled room, you know, very dry, but you've also got the option of adding you know the uh the spillage from the loading bay so you can control uh you know that loading bay sound by having the drums not in the loading bay you know so that was the, the one thing that we all went wow that's a great idea <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. mike do you still keep in touch with uh a lot of the staff that worked at little mountain
0: yeah here and there you know we uh you know mostly sort of bob and ron um uh, two of the other main engineers is Roger Monk and, and, uh, David Hayes. So we, we still talk fairly re- regular. Um, there's a bunch of staff that have kind of moved on and, and some have uh, passed away. So, uh, we've always talked about having a, getting a, a little mountain reunion going or something, but we never, never quite get there. And then this COVID hit and, you know, just get on with your life, I get. But you know, it was a very, we were a large, happy family. You know, it was the, the success at Little Mountain was due mostly to the staff and not so much the building and the and the gear, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I just want a final ACDC question before I leave you go, Mike. I'm going to put you on the spot here. You've done a lot of ACDC albums since the Razor's Edge. Do you have a favorite? Oh, geez. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I don't know if I do. You know, I think uh, I had my little gym. Songs here and there, but uh, you know, once you've worked on something, you know, it's probably a lot like a, a chef or a cook. You know, you just put all this time and love into creating something, and then it's to feed somebody else. You know, <laughs> like you might have your little nibbles as you're making it, but mm-hmm. once it's made. You know, uh, you know,
2: I don't go back and listen to the records very much. Once okay. It's done. You know. <laughs> I was going. I was going to actually ask that. Did you do? Actually, mm-hmm. listen to, to your. To, to your work that you've done over the years at all,
0: probably not <laughs> because you know you listen to it and and when I listen to it, I hear all the little blemishes and things, <laughs> um, you know, I wish I, I would have done that, oh, I could have done that better, you know, so it's just it's kind of painful to to listen to your old work, you know uh it's nice when you hear it come on the radio or something like I don't change a channel or anything. It's like, oh hey, that sounds pretty good on the radio or whatever but uh, i don't purposely go on and put it on to listen to it for sure
2: yeah because i've spoken to some producers and you know i'll ask them straight up if you could go back now and remix a record that you did which one would you pick and some of them instantly can pick it out and say that one and i'm thinking you must have listened to that a lot then if you have that opinion and you're completely the opposite where you don't listen to it at all no,
0: no I don't. <laughs> I to move on to the next one, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. What what was the hardest ACDC record to do was it ball breaker?
0: Yes, I think that was. That was uh that was a difficult one for sure. Oh, Just
2: um the title of the, the title of the record gives it away. It was a ball breaker Rick. to do. <laughs> yeah, maybe at first <laughs> <laughs> cuz I think Rick Rick, Rick Rubin is completely the opposite to the way Brendan produces.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Rick was pretty hands off on it and uh you know, we had spent six months in um, in New York, uh trying to track the record and and we were getting nothing from it so we had to move to LA or not six months, six weeks in New York. So then we had to move to LA and then redo the whole record again. So, you know, that isn't the kind of record that A C D C usually make. You know, it's usually Get in when you're playing the songs; they're fresh and all that. But after you know playing all through the songs for six weeks in New York and not keeping anything and moving to LA and starting all over again was a bit of a kick in the nuts, to be honest. You know, so it, it's yeah, you know, we got through it and it, and it turned out to be a great record, but it was it was a harder one to make than know, any of the other ones for sure.
2: Yeah, I, there's always something I forget to ask you, Mike, and I want to ask you about something David Coverdale has said for years and. It actually might come to fruition he's been talking about doing a re-release of the coverdale page record with bonus tracks um now the bonus the bonus tracks are out there i've heard some of them on youtube and i, I think there's 12 songs on the record or 11 songs you must have recorded probably 14 or 15 or 16 fully full tracks for that record would that be right
0: again, you know, I don't specifically remember, um, but that would be typical of what you would do on a record was, you know, if you're aiming to have 10 to 12 songs on a record, you would have, you know, 12 to 14, maybe 15 songs recorded because quite often, uh, you know, for foreign releases, they'd add a, a bonus track on. So you'd always record more, uh, than what was needed for the, for the record. So, you know, that'd be a good, good statement Yeah, it's probably extra songs
2: mm. now Jimmy Page done all the Zeppelin records fantastic producer engineer the whole lot and you're working you're working with him right yeah tell me about your relationship with Jimmy because did you sit down in the beginning and did Jimmy say to you you're going to be the one who's doing all of this I don't really want to get involved or was it a collaboration can you remember
0: uh, I think it was just more of a collaboration. I don't remember any sort of specific sit down and meeting. Uh, I do know I was pretty intimidated the first couple of days. You know, yeah, I'm sitting there next to Jimmy Page, the Jimmy Page, and uh, and you know, as co-producer of the record, you know, sometimes I'd say, yeah, I don't know if that's good enough, Jimmy. Say <laughs> that again. <laughs> you know, it's like that was hard to come out of my mouth. You know, because it's like you know, he was the master. Like it's so look up to them and still
2: do, you know. You, you think guys like David and, and Jimmy, they'd be the guys that, that know that they have a better take in them, though, and it wouldn't really come from you to tell them, would it?
0: No, and, you know, I'm using that as an example. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I ever needed to tell Jimmy, but, you know, I would give him my opinion, like, oh, I don't I think we can get a better sound or, you know, we would collaborate and work together, and I'd go up to the studio while he's tweaking his amps, and and whatnot, so yeah, we're a pretty good working team. It was a funny story, and I I can't remember if I told you this one, but uh, we had gone down to Miami to finish doing all the overdubs, and and we wanted to do it pretty relaxed, so we would work say from noon till 4 p.m. every day, and then have the weekends off, so you know, we'd come in one day and, and work all day just doing guitars, or one day we'd just come in and do all vocals, so one day we'd spend the day doing these acoustic guitars, probably six or eight different takes of these acoustic guitars so it get close to four thirty, five o'clock and he says okay let's let's call it a day and we'll come in tomorrow and and see what we got so they, they laughed and i thought oh these things are pretty messy so you know there's a way of pulling them off the tape and then flying them back in and, and kind of tidied them up and put them more in time and oh there we go so jimmy came in the next morning so let's listen to what we did yesterday so he's listening he goes what happened to the guitars i said oh well, i just kind of tidied them up a bit he goes well put them back <laughs> i had to put them back that was a great lesson for me that the, they don't necessarily have to all be in perfect time and and all that it's it's about the vibe and and he was looking to create the vibe so i've never forgot that lesson
2: on him is he the type of guitar player mike that he he won't add guitars like a lot of bands. They'll want a lot more guitars, more guitars, more guitars. Like he'll actually strip it all back if the song calls for it.
0: Oh, for sure. And you know, I think in in most rock music, you know, the adage that less is more is is definitely uh, true. And uh, you know, Jimmy likes his parts to have their own place and space in the mix. You know, if you start layering it too much, it just gets too too jumbly and thick and you can't really hear what the intention
2: of that guitar part was, you know? Mm. Did he take out any guitars and he said, oh yeah, I used this one on Led Zeppelin 3 or Physical Graffiti? Was there any of that? Uh,
0: no, but he had them all there, you know? I had a little play around on his on his uh, double string, you know, that Stairway to Heaven was done on, so that, that was
2: pretty... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you wouldn't want to... Cool.
0: Holy, holy Grail moment.
2: Yeah, Mike, you wouldn't want to drop that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> got a few band-aids and some string holding <laughs> together. I don't know what happened to this, uh, Jimmy.
2: <laughs> now, who's the drummer on that? Was it Denny Carmassi? It
0: was,
2: yeah. Yeah. It, it, was he, like, pretty quick getting his drum tracks down? Because he's a super drummer as well.
0: Oh, he was, he was fantastic. And... uh you know, I remember, you know, everything on this record was sort of very methodically thought out and put together. I know there was a lot of drum edits done while we were tracking it, uh, because, you know, it was back in the days where you were just doing it on multi, multi-tapes, not, there was no digital editing like there is nowadays, so if you wanted to change something, you had to replay it, or sometimes you'd just play a section and get that section the way you wanted it, and then you'd have to edit it all together. So there's a lot of that.
2: Going on, I remember. Mm, and was it Ricky Phillips played bass on it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ricky's
2: yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. And was who was there more for the recording then for the, the the drum and the bass tracks? Was Jimmy there the whole time, or was David there the whole time? Can you remember?
0: Yep, the whole the whole gang was there the whole time.
2: Okay, we were almost.
0: You know, all there together. Uh, David and Jimmy every day. I don't think we were at the studio unless both of them were there. You know. Until we're in Miami, and then, you know, when we're in Miami, if we're just doing a guitar day, David wouldn't come in. He might pop his head in here or there, and vice versa, if we're doing vocals, sometimes Jimmy wouldn't come in. But uh, generally, it was
2: all hands on deck, you know. Mm. Why'd you move to Miami, Mike? Why? Yeah.
0: Uh, well, because David and Jimmy both lived there at the time. Okay. So, once we're done uh, in Vancouver, and again, you know, they wanted to take their time on this record. Like, I think from top to tail is a year and two months or something. That took it took us to do the record. So, they did, you know, they wanted to be closer to home while they were doing all the little bits and pieces. So, once we got the tracking done in Vancouver for the
2: the loading day sound and everything. Then we moved everything down to Miami, and I think we're in Miami for like nine
0: months.
2: <laughs> Th- that must have been the longest you've ever done on one project. Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure, longest. Usually it's about, you
0: know, six to eight weeks on a project, so that was uh, quite a bit longer than normal.
2: Yeah, because, like, with a project that long, you can kind of lose yourself after a while because you're so involved in it that it's kind of hard to stand back and listen to it with fresh ears. Did, did you ever experience that at all? Or like w- when, when you say you were doing it for that long, was it constantly doing it for that long? Or did you get breaks in the middle of it? Or how did that all work? Can you remember?
0: Well, like I say, when we were in Miami, you know, we'd work, you know, maybe four to five hours a day, five days a week. So that wasn't long at all. Cause you know, usually you're working 12 hour days, seven days a week. So that was one reason why it, it stretched so long. Um, for nine months you know and yes it does get to the point when you work on a record for that long you know it's not um you're you're not as excited about the song as you originally were so as you get further along into the the project you think oh we need to add something more to that song to spark it up a bit well it's not that the song's any less uh, exciting it's just you're not you know you've listened to it for so long now you're kind of uh, you're kind of over it. So you keep trying to add things to it to make it exciting for yourself again. And so I remember when we were mixing, some of them, the newer ideas and stuff put on, you know, we trimmed back and took them off again because it was just making the songs too too busy, you know? But it was because of, you know, our sort of, I guess you could call boredom of the song by the time you're <laughs> getting towards the end, you're just trying to spark it up again, but it didn't beat
2: it, you know? Yeah. Um, Did you have any, did John Kuladner come down at all at any stage?
0: Uh, Yes. Uh, John was quite involved through most of it. Uh, He, you know, kind of let us do our thing. But I think there's probably, you know, if I remember right, you know, every three weeks or every month he'd pop in for a couple of days to see progress was going and, and whatnot. So, yeah, he was around quite a bit.
2: Hmm. And he was was he pretty open about his opinions on things, or can you remember anything like? Do you remember him saying anything to you like, "I, I don't like that"? Because I think he was the guy that was looking for the hit singles more than anything. And you dealt with John beforehand, didn't you?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. We've done a lot of work with John. You know, the Bruce and Bob Rock days. Uh, yeah, a lot of our records have gone through with John. So, you know, John's quite opinionated. You know, when he he has a thought, he he gives it to you, and he's not he's not musical. So sometimes you have to uh, understand what he means by it. You know, um, but you know, he's he's got a good ear. He knows he knows what he wants when he hears it if you know what I mean. You know, he sometimes can't describe how to get there, but he wants this. You know, he wants the room red. And then you got to figure out, well, what does that mean? And, uh, you know, so he would do that. You know, when we'd meet up, uh, when John would come, say, down to Miami or whatever, you know, he'd mostly sit in a room with uh, with Jimmy and, and uh, David, you know, while I was, you know, getting on with something. So it wasn't there wasn't really many big team meetings and, you know, he'd talk, I guess a lot to them about, you know, the the songwriting and what's his song and does this need that, etc. Mm-hmm. But, uh, he mostly, you know, he was around, but he mostly let us just kind of do our thing. I mean, it was Jimmy Page. So, you know, <laughs> who's going to tell Jimmy what, what he should be doing or not, you know?
2: Yeah. that That's what I'm thinking with, with John Kladner. Now I know he dealt with like, you know, you Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, you know, and you know, all these guys, but like, mm-hmm you could put, probably put Jimmy Page like a little bit above those guys when you're talking about stature and 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 influence and just overall musicality it's uh, yeah. you know you, maybe you had to tread a little bit care- more carefully with Jimmy
0: not so much that but there, there's just sort of the, the respect of Jimmy's production you know all yeah. the stuff he's produced yeah you know, and you know you've got to give him the full credit for that so again you know there isn't Many ways to say, uh, oh, no, Jimmy, you need to do it this way. <laughs> you know, it's like you kind of got to give Jimmy the, the,
2: you know, bow to him kind of thing. You know, did did Mike? Did you get a chance to sit down with Jimmy and ask him questions about recording the Zeppelin records? Because you must you must have been curious about it, being an engineer yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, I remember quite a quite a few times. You know, sometimes we go off and have dinner together, or. Or sit at a pub or whatever, so yeah there's there's a quite a few things we we chat about, you know uh he'd he always tell me that um you know there there would never be a a Led Zeppelin reunion with John gone. He says, you know uh, it just wouldn't be the same thing. John was a, a giant uh part of the band, and um and he says, you know that's why they've never really done a full proper. Led Zeppelin reunion, you know, it got close once with Jason, John's son, but mm-hmm. uh, um, that's the main reason he says not. He says it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't have been Led Zeppelin without John Bonham
2: there. Mm. When you ask, can you remember a question you asked him? And i again, I'm picking your brain. I'll leave you going in a minute, Mike, because I got to get back to work myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember asking Jimmy a question about how something was recorded back then, like say on the on the debut album or, or the albums after that? And you were amazed at how he was able to get that sound. Like, you're like, wow, you, were, you got it from doing that in the studio. Because you're talking about technology back then, late 60s, early 70s. A lot different mm-hmm. to, like, 90, the 80s when you came up in Little Mountain, and even the 90s when, it, when everything went digital. Like, right. do, you, yeah. do you remember asking Jimmy a question about something that they recorded back then with Led Zeppelin, and you were amazed at how they were actually able to get the sound?
0: You know, I don't really remember a specific time doing that. I know, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, on the Colorado Page record, he would do what he used to do back then, and, and that's, uh, when this thing, uh, his guitar signal through a couple of, uh, I think they're called memory mans, basically little tape, uh, slaps. Um, boxes. You know, you put a guitar in and it, it, it's got a tape slap to it and you can put a little chorusing on it or whatever. So you'd run it through a couple of those and, and overdrive one so that it would get a little bit distorted and come out and and it'd go into a guitar cabinet or whatever. So, you know, we we experimented a lot with that and then it'd be like, oh yeah, that was the, song, the same, same sound as you got on the, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah song on, on one of the Zeppelin things. So, you know, that was kind of cool, but we never really sat down and, and talked and, and never really picked his
2: brain you know mm, mm. well mike i'm gonna leave you go it's been a pleasure talking to you again
0: oh, oh it's a pleasure talking to you rich and uh hey thanks for sorting out my uh
2: my cell phone uh reception here it's been,
0: <laughs> it's been good today <laughs> it's,
2: you know what mike it's been it's been perfect
0: <laughs> oh excellent well it must be you mate <laughs> yeah yeah
2: yeah well hopefully you'll be back in work soon and keep doing what yep. you're doing
0: Cheers, mate. And you stay safe out there. All the uh, best to you and your family for the
2: Christmas coming up, too. You too, Mike. All right. I'll talk to you again. Uh, All right. Cheers, right. okay.
1: Bye. Bye. All right, Metalheads. There you go. Our latest chat with uh, engineer Mike Frazier. Always great to have Mike on the show. I am, like I said at the beginning of the show, so glad this worked out because I figured there is no better way to end 2020 than this awesome discussion with Mike. Brand new ACDC. Go out and pick yourself up your own copy of Power Up. I got to confess, I bought both the CD and the vinyl. And if ACDC wasn't enough of a discussion with Mike, uh, you know, we also had um, remembering some Eddie Van Halen and going back to some classic 1987, a little bit of Jimmy Page story in there as well. I mean, come on! What a great way to uh, to end it. Lots of good information, lots of fun stuff, positive stuff to cap off a, a pretty crappy dumpster fire of a year, and definitely a good way to uh, to cap it off before Richie and I transition over to our annual winter break. That's right. Sorry to say, but uh, it is time once again for us to take a few weeks off. And right now we're looking to be back on the air again come January, sometime in January, but we'll see what happens. You never know with, the, with COVID and all that, that sometimes you think you've got a plan and thing, things come up and all everything goes to crap. But as of right now, definitely time to go on break. And I know that, I know for myself, and I'm probably with Richie, the same thing with everything going on. There's no way that uh, either of us are prepared at all for anything with the holidays. Everything's been compressed, schedules are screwed up. I'm looking, I don't know where I'm at, but uh, this is definitely. uh, going to be a very helpful thing to be able to uh, attempt to enjoy a few weeks off. And of course, if you know you're getting lonely or whatever, you're missing us for a few weeks, you miss some episodes, go over to focusonmetal.net or up to the iTunes feed and uh, download or stream some of the things you've missed. Go back and listen to some of the projects. If you missed the Little Mountain stuff, then uh, definitely go back and listen to those. That's great stuff to listen to. Or any of the other projects, the Kerrang one, the Strange Highways, all good stuff available to you up at focusonmetal.net. And if you've heard all of that, then obviously there's also all the other guys that are out there. We've got Victor over with Mars Attacks. Our friends over at Talking Metal, The Decibel Geeks, Iron City Rocks, The Classic Metal Show, Bob Bandy and Shockwaves Podcasts, Wiki Metal. there's all kinds of great podcasts out there for you guys to listen to. A lot of them were uh, former members of the uh, Mighty Cast Iron Ring, so lots of other good stuff. Go and catch up with some of the other shows that are out there while you're waiting for us to get back in uh, hopefully January. But for this week... That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, be safe out there. And until we talk to you again once we get back from break, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.
0: Uh...